0: God is. He is. No matter all the problems and all the chaos and all the confusion we have in our world, God is. He is real. And, is. and so we started the month, kind of started this with God is love, right? We talked about the love of God. And then we had a special service with the Kellys. And then we had an incredible service last week youth focused and Seth brought the word and then so at the end of the month I want to come back to this because we're still talking about knowing God you remember a few weeks even before that into January we were focused on that so I pray that all this builds and continues to build as we grow closer and we learn and we grow and we take what we get from the word of God and the Holy Spirit helps to illuminate our understanding and we apply it and we respond to it and it changes us as we leave here and we go throughout our week because we never know what we're going to face out there do we and um So uh, I need to know this, but as we look at some of the attributes of God today, uh, it's going to be a little more, for me anyway, heavy as we talk about this, because there is nothing like God, and yes, God is love, God is mercy, God is grace, God is all-powerful. God is all present. God is all knowing. But a centerpiece of every one of these attributes is this one. This one can be a little bit difficult to grasp. As I often said, it's kind of like that big fat brother in law. Uh, You know, you love him, uh, you love him, but you just can't quite get your arms around him, right? Uh, This is one of those things I love it, but I just can't quite get my arms all the way around it, right? Uh, but at the centerpiece of all, and I'm not have any particular brother-in-law of mine in mind when I say that. Well, maybe a little bit, but not, co- I, okay. Um, so I, I don't know if we're streaming or not, so I have to watch it. Oh, we are, okay. Uh, so there was a disclaimer, you know, I just want to put out there. that the centerpiece of all that God is, his nature of who he is, his essence of who he is, is this one. And you've probably figured it out already, but God is Sorry, I I fast-forwarded. God is holy. God is holy. Now, it's one of those uncomfortable attributes of God that reminds us how unlike Him we are. So what I want to do is start off talking about the holiness of God in Psalm 99. Now, we have quite a few verses I want to look at because obviously this message is topical in nature as we even expound on a few of these passages But this is the way that we can just skim the surface today because there's so much here. God is holy. So look at Psalm 99. Now, we have uh, in our Facebook page, uh, there's a link to sermon notes and all of the, I think pretty much most of the verses we're going to use. The outline, you can add your own notes. You uh, uh, can just click that link on our church Facebook page. Um, If you have the Uversion app, you can open, go to the menu, events, search for Hartville, Missouri. Or if you have your locator on, it'll find us. Click on it. There's notes there. And the reason for that is you can follow along. You can add your own thoughts, and you can save it. And even if you only come back one time later in the week and read over it and meditate over these things, the Lord is going to continue to teach you and show you. We want to take this from this place out there where we can apply it in our lives, Okay. So, use those tools if you can. And I want to read this because this psalm, psalm, 1, or psalm, 99, psalm 99, as we open the Word of God, Psalm 99 is a psalm that was written as a, as a tool for worship. It's a tool for worship. As, as the ancient people of God gathered... In the Old Testament, you know, they had to come to a central location where the presence of God was manifest. And that was on Mount Zion at the temple. And not just at the Temple Mount, not just at the temple, uh, but in the inner room, the innermost room of the temple, in the Holy of Holies. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, and the Mercy Seat, and the Golden Cherubim. And right there was a visible representation of the Shekinah glory of God. But yet, Solomon even said when they dedicated the temple, the whole universe can't contain him. He's everywhere. But that was a manifestation. of. So now we live in the time that all of these things that were pointing to something that was coming, the coming Messiah, the deliverer, has happened, and it's fulfilled in Christ. So when some of this imagery, when he talks about he sits enthroned upon the cherubim, it's not just talking about heaven. It's not just talking about the temple, but you do realize something that the psalmist didn't know. Living in the day that we live in, on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, he says, enthroned in our hearts. That very presence of God that dwelled in the tabernacle, in the temple, can dwell in us. That, in fact, Paul says, our physical bodies is the temple of God. That makes you want to just shout out loud. Right? Okay. So this is something that they used in worship as it recounts the glory of God and who he is. It's something the early church would use and read as they sang this. This is their song book, right? I like, like, some of the songs we sing are based on scripture. And and even I fight my battles based on Psalm 23. And, And I'd like to just bring out this. So read it with me. I'm reading in the ESV. You follow along with what you have there. The psalmist starts out, the Lord reigns. Means he's sovereign, he's in control. Amen. You say amen if you want to say amen. All right, he said let the people tremble. Well, now sometimes we rejoice, but sometimes we tremble. That has to do with the all factor and fear and reverence of God. He goes on to say, He sits enthroned among upon the cherubim, let the uh, earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, He is exalted. Over all the peoples, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. That's where it comes from, from him. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob or in Israel. Exalt the Lord our God. That's a good idea today. Let's exalt him. Let's not let the rocks have to cry out. God's people, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. So it sounds like we're exalting him and we're bowing at his feet. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. Amen? Because we need it but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Amen. It's just powerful and rich. I just want to just bask in that and read that out loud and pray that and worship oh, the holiness of God. So it's tough to define. You set of things. so how would you define the holiness of God? Well, It's really tough, but I want to borrow this, and partly from Dr. Tony Evans, whom I really love and respect, but one way we can look at it is this, as his intrinsic and transcendent purity, his perfection. Now, when it says his intrinsic, that means he has it of himself. He didn't get it anywhere. It's who he is. It's part of his essence. It's part of his nature. And transcendent means that it transcends and goes beyond anything of His creation. There's nothing like it here. It surpasses. So God's holiness could be, in part, defined as His intrinsic and transcendent perfection, purity. It's, it's, it's His standard of what is right. When we talk about righteousness, it has to do with that which is right With God. He is the standard of that. The standard of righteousness to which the whole universe must conform. He's God. He is holy and just and righteous. This is the God that we worship. He's the standard. His holiness also denotes something else. The word itself denotes this. His separation from all that is imperfect and impure. He is separate from all that is imperfect and impure. And this is where I begin to shudder. You know, there's some atheists that'll say that, well, there couldn't be a God given the existence and the pre- prevalence of all of the evil and all the bad that's happening. Actually, the opposite's true. You can only call evil evil if there's something against which you can measure it so that you could call it evil. Right? If there was no standard of perfection of something that's good, you can only call evil that because you have a standard of something that is perfect and something that is good, a good and holy God. And uh, so let's consider a few of the aspects of God's holiness as we look at this uh, as as quickly as we can this morning. But, But let's take our time to absorb this and contemplate this and and, and know this and know him. This is all about knowing him in our relationship because God invites us not just to know about him but to know him personally, deeply, and intimately. He wants a relationship. That's what God created human beings for is a relationship with himself. That's why the possibility of evil did exist because he didn't create us to operate just a programmed instinct like the animals or to be like robots. He created us with an ability to choose because love demands choice. We talked about that about 3 Three weeks ago, okay? And so that we can respond to him or we could reject him. And guess what? We've all rejected him. And it brought about that possibility because love is a choice. Now, here's the thing. God chose to love you and God chose to love me knowing already how it would cost him. I can think of millions of reasons why I should love God probably if I sat down and had long enough I can't give you one good reason why he should have loved me. Probably the same is true of you too. Except that he chose to. Don't come off out of here saying that you're worthless and no good. Or you've messed up too bad. Because the fact is Christ has already borne your sins to the cross. And he paid for them. And he took the punishment for them. And he offers that payment to pay your sin debt to you as a free gift, but you have to receive it. You have to receive it by faith. And the only way you're gonna come to a point of receiving it by faith, if you realize there is no other way, there is no other one, I can't save myself. I acknowledge the fact that I am a sinner and that's where most people fall out right there. We don't wanna be held accountable for our sin and to realize it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. To realize that he thought you were worth it. He has already paid the price. He has already, you know how much something is worth by how much somebody's willing to pay for it. Look at what he paid for you. He didn't do that just so that you could be a failure. He didn't do that just so you could struggle. But the fact is during the struggle, in the midst of the struggle, he wants to bring purpose and power out of it, and he will. He will as we trust him. And so this is what God wants to do in and through our lives, even in the pain that there's a purpose and there's power available, and I feel like I can't make it, that's good because I can't make it. I have to trust him and reach up to him. We're reaching to too many other things. We're comparing ourselves to everyone else on social media. We're comparing ourselves to this and that. We're reaching for this to try to satisfy us, to try to distract us, to try to please us, when really we need to reach up to him, and he's going to show us, and he's going to guide us, and he's going to guard our hearts and so true revival you know and people are talking about how revival is happening what is revival we may talk about this more later on but revival is when God's people themselves get back on fire we get refocused and we get re-energized to the purpose and the mission of who he is and what he's given us to do Uh, it's all about worshiping it all flows out of that but it starts somewhere even before it starts with worship and flows out of that it starts somewhere it starts with this realizing who he is and in light of his holiness and his perfection, we bow and we acknowledge that we are undone and we're sinners. Revival always, you go through all of history, it starts with what we call repentance. It starts with repentance. That I, I realize that I am not where I need to be. I, I, and, and it's not just saying, I'm sorry, God. It is that Agreeing with God, that's what the word confess means, and turn. Repentance involves turning, changing. I'm willing to turn and change the path and follow the path that you have for me. And so as we look at holiness, I'm, I am just—I really convicted about continual areas in my life where he shows me that I need to turn. I need to change. I need to become more Christ-like. I need to repent. And when the church when God's people are realizing who God is and trusting Him fully and bowing down before Him and repenting and trusting Him and turning to Him and that not be about us, but it's about Him, that's when it begins to sweep across lands and nations. It's happening on most every continent, folks, and it's even happening here, these times that God tries to refocus His people. Because I'm telling you, our world is dark. And it's lost in all areas when it comes to relationships, when it comes to family, when it comes to our socioeconomics, when it comes to psychology. It's all falling apart because it's not based on the word of God. He's the creator. He's the designer. You can do whatever you want to do. But unless you base it on his word, it's just not going to work. His way is the best way. And until God's people get on their face and we get right with him and let his power flow through us, we're not gonna have a very big effect on the lost around us. So how are we gonna see our world change? How are we gonna see our community change? How are we gonna see this state, this nation change? It doesn't start with them getting their act together. It starts with us getting our act together and God being able to use us I find that people are drawn to Jesus. It's a lot of times people like us that turn folks off. Now, it's true that some will be offended by the gospel, but you know, some of the people that I've seen the most offended by the gospel are those that are the most under conviction, and that God does his work, he ends up drawing them right to himself. We just want to be his instruments and be ready to be used by him. So let's look a little bit of his holiness, and here's what he says here's what the Word of God shows us, that holiness is the centerpiece of all of God's attributes, of everything that we're talking about as we look at it, and that He is glorious in His holiness. And we said about the love of God, the love of God uh, reflects the glory of God, that all of it's tied to His glory, because that's who He is also. He's glorious, but His holiness is also glorious. In fact, In Exodus 15, Moses and all the people of Israel were singing about their deliverance from Pharaoh and coming through the Red Sea and all of that. And after reciting some stuff about how God had delivered them and how God had brought them through, Moses says this in verse 11 of Exodus 15. He says, "'Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods?' Because, you know, the Egyptians worship many gods, right? They weren't real, but they worshipped them as gods, right? So here's what he says, "'Among all the people in this world, they're worshipping all kinds of stuff, "'Who, O Lord, is like you among all the gods?' "'Who is like you?' Listen to how he describes him. "'Majestic in holiness, "'awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders.'" Nobody like you. Awesome. In glorious deeds. Majestic in holiness. He is glorious in His holiness. Now the key, as it says here, to understanding the nature of God is understanding and getting at least a little bit familiar, you know, starting to get a grip on His holiness because that's who He is. It's what unlocks the door and makes understanding his other attributes. It helps us make sense out of them and everything else about him. So if you don't begin to grasp his holiness, that he is holy, you're not going to be able to understand other things about God and connect the dots because it permeates all the other attributes. It's at the heart of who God is. His love is holy. His omniscience, all knowingness is holy. His power is holy. His presence is holy. Everything about him is holy. In fact, when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord that one day, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, here's what he saw. He saw those around the seraphim, around the flaming ones, around the throne of God. And it said, and one cried to another, Isaiah 6, 3, and said, What did they say? What were they continually echoing? And it's been going on throughout the ages of eternity and they've never gotten tired and it's never gotten boring for them as they're continuing to cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, He's thrice holy. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's all there. Holy is The Lord, they're crying out in front of his throne right now. It's at the center of who God is. So we need to get a grip on this. We need to realize this. We need to meditate on this. Another thing we need to think about it is that it is what separates him from all his creation. Because the word holy means to be separate. In fact, God says he dwells on a high and holy place because he is the holy one. Now, watch this. Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15. If you look at it, here's what he says. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Do you contemplate and meditate on God like this when you come together even, or whether you're by yourself when you're beginning to open his word and worship him and pray to him? He is the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. Where does God live? In forever? He's eternal. I don't know how to explain it. Whose name is what? What is his name? His name is holy. Here's what God says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him or her. He's talking about humanity. Who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. So it sounds like if we're going to have revival to the lowly, broken down spirit and heart, that we need to have a contrite and humble and lowly spirit and a repentant heart. That's what he's talking about here. And so, listen, the Hebrew word, we'll come back to that. But the Hebrew word that's translated holy, it means separate. It's the same uh, English part of that is the same word from which we get the root words for saint or sanctified. It means we're separated from everyone else. If something is sanctified, it's set apart. Literally is what that means. It means set apart. It belongs to God. He tried to teach us about this, and all and some of it are like, what we might look at in Leviticus and all that is some of these ridiculous—rules and laws about purity—and when something was dedicated to be used in the temple, it couldn't be used for anything else at all. And even though we're not under the Old Testament law, and although Christ fulfilled all these things, the fact of the matter is, God was trying to use object lessons to teach His people that He is holy, and that when you belong to God, He wants you to be holy, separated out for Him. That's what that word means. It carries that meaning of being separate or distinct because God is separate and distinct from his creation. We must humble ourselves before him because he is so high in where he dwells and who he is. I must bow low when I fully understand who he is. There is nothing else. There is no other response. When I recognize how glorious in holiness and how awesome he is, I want to, I must bow and humble myself before Almighty God. Now, the trick of the devil and the sin of the devil is Satan tried to get Adam and Eve, and he tries to get us to not humble ourselves. We want to be God over our own lives. We're proud in so many ways that we don't even see, and we resist him. But we're not going to know him until we stop resisting him and we humble ourselves and bow before him. That's when he can set us apart. And God is holy and he is perfect holiness. That's why he told Moses, when Moses approached him at the burning bush where his presence was revealed, God told Moses to do what? He said, kick off your shoes, boy. (laughs) That's my translation. He actually said to remove your sandals. Because where he's standing, where he stood before him. Uh, you know what? Here's the thing. If that's holy, I would say, well, if it's holy, I better keep my sandals on to protect my feet. No, God says, whew. Think about this. God is so holy, you need to take your shoes off. I would almost think, ah, I just keep them on because I don't want the sand that's holy sand. I'm standing to burn my feet. No, God says take them off. I want you in contact with my holiness. You think about that? Moses is going to actually touch his bare feet on the holy ground. God says, I want contact. I want my holiness to be available to envelop you, not scare you away. Take off your shoes. I don't know. That just overwhelms me at the moment. So when you come to understand how high and how holy God is, I begin to understand how little I am. People coming before God, acting if they're all this big stuff, you know, commanding God and shouting around and all that, they might just be proving that they don't, Fully grasp at that moment who God is. He's holy and he's awesome. You know, some of the people who had the word of God, they just, they got focused on themselves. And Paul talks about that in Romans 10, 3. He said this, talking about the Jews who... Had the word, but had rejected. Some of them believed, but many had rejected it. He has a burden for them. He even says, I wish that there's some way that they could all be saved. But here's what he says in Romans 10:3: For being ignorant of the righteousness, that's that perfection of God. That's that purity, that holiness of God. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And he goes on to talk about how that they're still trying to achieve their own righteousness through the law. And we find out that was never God's plan. And that's why he built in the sacrifices that taught us about the Lamb of God who was to come. But now God's righteousness is offered through Jesus Christ. And if you reject Jesus, there is no way to establish your own righteousness. That apart from Christ... There is no holiness. There is no rightness. There's no way to be right with a perfect, just, and holy God. God is so holy, He cannot even be tempted to sin or do wrong. In fact, that's what James is telling us in James chapter 1, verse 13, when he says, Let no one say, When he's tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He may allow the devil to tempt you, but he's not going to allow even the devil to tempt you on a level that's more than you could stand with his help. And Peter tells us that he knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation if we'll trust him. He may allow the enemy to do things, but God himself is not the source of it. And the thing about it is that we need to realize right quick is that because God is so perfect and so holy that he's not like us, because of his holiness, God does not view sin by, by degrees like we do. Now, what I mean there is we get really confused here because we look at some people and say, well, you know what? They're bad, low-down sinners. Now, I know I may not be perfect, but Lord, have mercy. I'm good, right? I'm, I'm. And, and if we're not careful, we begin to look down our nose at certain people and other people. Uh, but you know what? Uh, we don't know anything about, about them. We, we don't even know too much about ourselves because uh, we, we think we want to put ourselves above them. The truth of the matter is, in God's way of looking at things, that what does he weigh us against? Well, people always will say, well, you know what? I'm as good as the next person. People will say, you know what? I'm as good as a lot of people at that church or go to that church or that one. I'm as good as a lot of them. The problem is, is when we look at this book, when God judges us, what's the standard of judgment? He doesn't say in judgment day he's going to call you up and say, oh, is that right? Uh, You're as good as old so-and-so. Come here, so-and-so. Well, yeah, I guess you are. Come on in. That's not how it's going to happen. The Bible says that God's judgment is going to be judged based against his own perfection and holiness. Unless you are as perfect in all your thoughts and deeds and actions as Jesus Christ, you fall short. You don't measure up. You are lost and you're a sinner. That's what he's trying to teach us. In fact, he he tells us, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All of us miss the mark. All of us. Now, there are degrees of consequences of sin. Okay? So we can't necessarily say all sin is the same or sin is sin. All sin can condemn you as far as being lost, but you know the consequences of uh, you know uh, not paying someone what you owe them may be different legally in this world and impactful than uh, murder. Right? So what I'm saying is, and in fact, some of there was a few places where Jesus talked about how that it would be more tolerable. So these people that he sent the disciples to preach and they reject them, he said, I'm going to tell you, they hear the truth and they reject you, it's going to be more tolerable for like Solomon Gomorrah in judgment than them. So it's like, man, so were they more sinful? No, they weren't more sinful. The fact is they did commit a greater sin in that these people had the disciples, the presence of Christ, heard the truth and rejected it. The others didn't have that much of it. And then he goes on in another story and tells about to those who have been given much to those servants who've been given much and know the will of their master and refuse to do it that they're going to have to answer for that. And I start thinking about how, how much I've been given. I think about how other people were born into families that didn't know them, didn't teach them, didn't take care of them. I think about the abuse and about the mistreatment and the things. You know, I joke around. and i whine around about how, man, being in the middle of three boys, being a middle child, how, you know, mistreated I was. And, you know, growing up on a dairy farm, how we had to go work and do all that, you know, and just come home from school, get a snack and go. Just like Monopoly, do not pass go, right? You do not, you you go, go. remember that you land on that one thing or you get that one card to say go directly to jail. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, go directly to jail. Just go directly to the dairy barn, you know. Do not pass go, do not whatever. You can grab a snack, but get up there. And I didn't see all my friends having to do that, and I thought, boy, I was pitiful. Sorry, you know, for myself. And um, But you know what? Mom and dad never attended my pity parties. Got married. Clarissa, sure enough, doesn't have a lot of of appreciation for my pity parties. Her nickname is the pity party pooper. But, um, but the thing about it is when I think about the family I was born in and my mom and dad and watching them go through what we're going through even now, and I just think about how rich and how blessed I am and how I was taught. And no, they weren't perfect, and they're not perfect. But I think about the community. I think about the church, and the church wasn't perfect either. Far from it. But I think about what all God's given me, and I realize how much I have to be accountable for. Now, I feel like I'm accountable for a lot more than a lot of people because I was given a lot. You can call that whatever you want to call it, but Jesus calls it accountability. And I'm going to have to answer for that. Well, God is so holy and perfect that all sin does condemn us in his presence. So it doesn't matter how good you think you are, you're not good enough that you don't need to be saved. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are, you're not so bad that you can't be saved. That puts us right there together on even ground. That's just like when you go into surgery. Now Dave's going to have some surgery this week. We're praying for him. But, you know, if you go in there to have that, you know, uh, since you've already had one hip, you've got only one left. So they're going to replace it too. And uh, is there maybe some more stuff needs to be replaced? I don't know. But... um Anyways, it goes in there, you know, if the doctor says, hey, we just had an emergency, you know, there was a guy that, that we don't even know his name, he just come off the streets and we had his bloody mess, and, but we, we're going to get you in here, we're going to wipe everything off and blow on it, and it looks clean, so we're going to go ahead and cut on you. You would be like, no way, we're not doing this, because you know, as I always use this illustration, it has to be sterilized, right, because one microscopic germ a bacteria or a virus that you can't see with the naked eye might be all it takes to give you an infection. I'm not trying to scare you, Dave, okay? But <laughs> it give you an infection or or a disease that could kill you, okay? You know that. So it's got to be sterilized. One germ, it's not sterile. God's presence and God's essence is totally sterilized from imperfection and sin. One sin is all it would take to contaminate it. That's why God just can't let you and me into heaven like we are. If God's God, why can't he just overlook our sin? If he did, he would not be holy. He would not be perfect. He would not be God. And this is why now we understand that understanding God's holiness, it changes the way we encounter him. If there's any adjusting needs to be done, it's me. Everybody wants God to change things to fit what they want to do. No, it's we. When the prophet Habakkuk ran into the holiness of God, he said, My inward parts tremble, my lips quiver. Isaiah encountered the holiness of God in that Isaiah chapter 6. He said, what? Woe is me. When you come face to face with God, it affects the way that that you look at the way you are. You discover who you really are. See, a lot of times we don't take the Christian life serious enough. Uh, We don't properly understand God. If, if, if we're going to be serious about walking with God and understanding who he is and who we are in light of him, we've got to understand that because he is so high and so perfect and so holy, I must bow low. I must hallow his name. I must worship him seriously and with passion. I've got to stop playing worship. I've got to stop playing Christian. I've got to stop playing church. When God sees us oftentimes during the week treating our bosses with more respect and give them more time and attention. When we give the creator of the universe, he says, you don't know me. I'm the holy one. And that's why God's holiness demands that he judge sin. It's natural and necessary because God is holy. He must judge sin. As I said, if he didn't, he wouldn't be perfect, he wouldn't be holy, he wouldn't be God. He can't skip or overlook them. It's because it's his nature, his essence, it's holy. And his judgment is all-inclusive. It's all-inclusive. All sin, all sin has to be judged. Now, God has judged and will judge sin. It's true. You can hide from it, you can not believe it, but the fact is it's true. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say, this is on that great judgment day, he will say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for whom? The devil and his angels. God did not create hell for people. He created hell for the devil. Then why do people go there? And the answer from Scripture is because they choose to. It's not that God sends anyone there. They choose to. They reject Christ. Since God must judge sin and you're a sinner, your sins will be judged. I'm telling you, every one of our sins will have to be judged. And that is, either you are going to receive the judgment and the payment that Jesus took for your sins. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation. That means no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus that either you receive by faith the gift of salvation and payment that Jesus made on the cross where He paid for your sins. If you don't do that, then you're going to stand before God in judgment alone in your sin. And because God is perfect and holy and heaven's a perfect place, you can't be a part of it. So my sins have to be paid for. Either I receive the payment Jesus made Either the cross pays for your sins or you'll be separated from God in hell forever. The fact is, it's what makes it so bad is Jesus took your hell. Now stop right there because somebody's thinking, well, what about people who haven't heard a clear presentation of the gospel? God is holy and he's just and he will always do right. That's not your problem because you have heard so it doesn't really matter. That's not even uh, germane to your topic at this moment. Because you do know. And if we reject Jesus, there's nothing left but to stand before God alone in our sin. And because God's so perfect, we'll be cast out into outer darkness. It's God's terms that we must come to. God is the one. And God's holiness also demands this. Not only that he judges the sinner, but he loves the sinner. And we have to approach him. Are we taking him serious? Are we coming to him on his terms? The other thing is is that it will be reflected in our lives. When When we come to this holy God and we receive that gift of salvation and judgment for sins that Jesus made on the cross, and he comes into our heart and our life, he begins to just transform. He's not just stamping our ticket to heaven. He's stamping our life as image of Christ. This means we may have to separate from some things. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart. And it's not that, oh, boy, well, I'll have to this or that. No, you'll want to because of your passion for this holy God whom you know and love and worship and experience. Peter says this, 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, you know, the way you were, which were yours in ignorance. You didn't know any better. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He wants to imprint us with the image of Christ and build on our salvation by developing holiness in our lives. So the holiness of God demands that we be holy. But get this before we close. Get this. Remember this. Are you still with me? Remember, holiness is not the way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness did you get that remember that Crowder song what is it I need you and part of it says holiness is Christ in me that's it isn't it that's what makes me holy it's Christ but I've got to keep trusting him and I got to keep walking with him and helping him tra- and, and cooperating with him as he transforms me and the Spirit of God, the very presence of Christ in me to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, which I can't produce, only he can produce it in my life. So we wrap this up with this What's your response? What's your response? Who is Jesus in your life? Do you know this holy God, this holy one who came? Hey, part of the glory and the holiness the disciples got a glimpse of, at least Peter and James and John did, the day that they were up on the mountain and Jesus zipped down that humanity and they saw him transformed, transfigured. We're all going to see him that way someday. And isn't it going to be awesome to know that this God who is our judge, who is holy, listen to me, is also our savior. Who himself came and did what we couldn't do, fulfilled the law the way we couldn't fulfill, and paid the price for all of our sin. Our judge is also our Savior and the one who loves us. So who is Jesus in your life? Who do you say he is? And then what does your life say that he is? Father, help us today.